Good morning. Merry Christmas. How are we doing this morning? All right. Thank you, Jason. Everybody else is kind of okay. Glad you're here. So, so glad you're here this morning and a Merry Christmas to you. My name is Ross, uh, and we're just glad you're here at Centennial Church, and we're glad uh, to take this time this morning to uh, focus our minds, focus our hearts on the reason that we're celebrating this season. Uh, yesterday was a momentous day in our family, at our home. It was a momentous day because our oldest had his first basketball game of his career. <laughs> Big day. Yeah. And I now owe him $5 for telling this story. Okay. But as we were preparing, as we got up this morning, we're preparing, uh, having a pancake breakfast and getting ready for that 11.45 tip-off. Uh, if you didn't catch it on TV, you can catch some videos from me afterwards. I have some on my phone. But anyway, uh, Braxton says to me, Dad, uh, before the game, could I just listen to some rap music or watch some Steph Curry highlight videos? To which I said, Steph Curry, we can do that. Uh, that's what he wanted to get ready for the game, right? To pump himself up. And the question, I'm going to make a point out of this. The question I have for us this morning is, what are you doing to get ready? What are you doing to prepare? See, we're in the midst of a season, week two here, that we call Advent, and it's a time of preparation. It's a time of expectation. It's a time to focus our hearts and set our hearts ready for the coming of Jesus and the celebration of Christmas. This year, we, uh, we've prepared uh, some, some resources for you. Uh, we've prepared a family advent guide. And so if you just go to our website, centennialchurch.com backslash advent, you can get the PDF download there. We handed them all out the last two weeks, so I don't have a physical copy to offer you this morning. But what I want to encourage you to do, okay, whether you're single, uh, married, married with kids, whatever, but uh, there is info there, there is material there, song uh, recommendations, activities to do, uh, questions to consider to help us not uh, just race to Christmas but to prepare our hearts and to be ready to celebrate, okay? As I've said in the last couple of weeks, this uh, can be one of the busiest times of the year, and uh, we've prepared this guide along with, our, uh, with some help from our brothers and sisters at the Village Church, and it's just a wonderful tool uh, for you to use individually or as a family, so I want to remind you to do that um, this Advent season, right? There are a lot of uh, words that might come to your mind when you think about this season. Uh, some of the common ones are ones that we're focusing on as we light the, the Advent candles each week, but those are words, four popular words, those being hope, peace, joy, and love. Those are common words associated with this season and in the celebration of Advent. Some other uh, words that might uh, pop into your head that you might see around uh, in the season, light, that the light has dawned. For those walking in light, in darkness, excuse me, a light has dawned. 
We think of another word, Emmanuel, which describes this, this miracle, this celebration of the incarnation of Jesus, of God dwelling with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Well, this morning, I want to offer to us, as we look at this brief passage this morning, I want to offer to us three words that are unusual that you probably don't think of or you probably don't hear often as you think about the Advent season. But I want you to uh, consider them this morning as we look at Luke chapter 2. Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2 or turn your Bible on, I might say. Uh, Luke chapter 2 to this classic Christmas passage, and we're just going to look at the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, okay? And we'll go further in Luke chapter 2 next week. But Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and Sherry did a beautiful job of reading this already to us earlier, but I want to read it again and uh, note three words. Those words being real, ordinary, and surprising. Okay? Real, ordinary, and surprising. So follow along with me, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Would you pray with me? Father God, we just come to you this morning and we do ask that uh, even this morning you would uh, work in our hearts, you would prepare us to joyfully celebrate this miracle, joyfully celebrate the coming of Jesus to us these 2,000 years ago. And also, Lord, to prepare our hearts, to build hope in our hearts, to anticipate his coming again. It's in his name we pray, amen. So three words, and let's begin with that first word, and the first word being real. So you think about the Christmas season, and you think about this story in Luke chapter 2 of Christ's birth, I want you to remember the word real, because when you look at those first two verses, we see that the author Luke is intending us to see that this is real, this is truth, this happens in a real time, in real place, in real places, with real people. He, he puts it in an era that those in the ancient world would know, in the time of Caesar Augustus, a real emperor, when Quirinius was governor. Now, there's some debate about how that works out and when he actually reigned, and I'm not going to take time to talk about that, but if you have a good study Bible, you can find out a little bit of the detail and the debate about this guy who served as governor, or maybe these things happened before he served as governor. The word first there can be translated before or first. But Luke's point here is to tell us through names and through places like Syria and Nazareth and Bethlehem that what he is reporting here is real. 
that it actually happened in time, space, and history, and, and others were witnesses to this. And this story made its way uh, not just around the, the world of Jerusalem, but quickly beyond the area of Jerusalem around the Middle East. Uh, Luke is clear in Luke chapter 1 as he begins this gospel account that he, he writes, verse Luke 1, 1, he, he writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty concerning the things that have been taught." So Luke the doctor is also Luke the historian, and he wants his readers to know time, place, real people, just as real as Caesar Augustus is Mary, the mother of Jesus, is Joseph, the carpenter. So we are meant to read this not as fantasy or fable this morning, but as the true story, the story of all others and thus, we should have confidence as we read this story that it's not just a fable, that it's not just myth, but it's a true story set in a real time, in a real place, with real people. Not only uh, do we see that it's real, that it's intended to be real, but we also shockingly see in these seven verses the incredible ordinariness of the story. And if you just look in these seven verses, there's, there's really nothing uh, miraculous here, at least on the surface of it. There's some hints that, hey, their family belonged to the city of David, so there's a royal lineage here. They're going uh, in the midst of this ordinary census on the surface of it. A ruler has made a decree, and so they are being good citizens, and they are going back to their places of birth to register for this, for this census. But on the, on the surface of it, in these seven verses, there's really much that is just ordinary and mundane and not miraculous. You think about those words, that uh, song we often sing at this time, a little town of Bethlehem. And one of the lines of that song, a little town of Bethlehem, goes like this. It goes, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. That there's not fireworks going off as Jesus is born. There's not a shout from heaven. Now, the angel is going to appear in the verses later to the shepherds, also unordinary guys, unlikely to be the first recipients of this cosmic, life-changing event. But there's a lot of just ordinariness here, not spectacular. In fact, just two little verses with very little detail of the actual birth. Verses 6 and 7, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. They're there. It's time. The clock is ticking. Hey, I think it's happening now. And then verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Again, not any detail, but she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. The story of Christmas. And yes, there will be the voices of angels. Yes, it was a miraculous conception. And yet, 
the God of the universe, comes into time and space history in an unknown little town among ordinary people, among a teenage girl and a young man. Not the significant, not the famous, not the wealthy, not those that have it together, but amongst the ordinary, run-of-the-mill, mundane of life and common people. And the story of Christmas, if nothing else, is the story that God can hide His greatest of gifts in the poorest of packages. God can be doing in the ordinary an extraordinary work. And that is the story of Christmas. Often we are looking for God uh, beyond the mundane, beyond the ordinary. God, give me a miracle. Come through in a miraculous way. And the story of Christmas is that God often moves in the ordinary, quietly, silently, not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. Not among those who have it together, but among those who are weak, among those who are confused, among those who are just trying to get along and be faithful. In the ordinary, God can be accomplishing something extraordinary. And as we can have confidence that this story is real because God has chosen in the pinnacle time of history of fulfilling his prophecies, that he has come in the ordinary, we can therefore have comfort that God hasn't forgotten the little people, that God is likely to work in the unknown and the unseen and among the overlooked, that God chooses the girl that everyone else overlooks that God uses Joseph the man that nobody else would select. God works in the ordinary, and he worked in the ordinary in his first coming, and he still works in the ordinary today. Not only is it real, not only is it ordinary, but we're also meant to see that it's surprising very much related to the idea that he's ordinary, but it's surprising that this is the way that God would choose to work. Last week, we talked about this promise of God's deliverance. And we said that Christmas started not uh, in Luke chapter 2 or not in the genealogies of Matthew chapter 1, but the promise of God's coming actually goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, the world has fallen apart. The world has been broken by sin. And even in that, that worst of times, God makes this promise. And he tells the serpent who has tempted Eve and Adam that a deliverer will come who will crush the head, who will strike the head of the serpent, that God will get victory That man is not doomed, but God would fix this through a deliverer. And thousands and thousands of years from Genesis 3 on through the time of Adam and Eve and Noah and Moses and all the prophets, God continues to make this promise that he will get victory, that the rescuer would come, the deliverer would come. He said it, and we can be sure of it. Right here at Luke chapter 2, we see that this decree comes 
from the emperor. And we're meant to see that this human decree is met by another divine decree that began all the way back in the beginning of time, that God had decreed that sin would not win, but that God would conquer sin, death, the evil one, and death itself through a rescuer. And if that's the promise that he is coming to conquer, that he's coming to crush, then why would he come in the form of a helpless babe? Why would he be born, surprising that he would be born in the backwater town of Bethlehem, away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, away from the center of the world at that time, Rome, surprising that God would come as a babe and come in this form But he came. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. But who would have dreamed he would send his son like this? That the Messiah would come and there would be no room in the end. That he would... Dawn, not a royal robe, but swaddling cloths. That he would be attended not by a myriad of servants, but by barn animals. Philippians chapter 2 says, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The king became a servant. God became a man in Jesus. 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 9 says, Paul writes, Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. The wonder of it all, that God the King would come as a baby. That he would lie not in a bed of silk sheets, in a mansion of gold, but in a wooden manger. He would surprise the world with the ordinariness of it, the wonder of it, so that we might have hope, so that we might worship in this way that God has come so surprisingly. Let me read you these words from one author about this surprising way that Jesus has come. He who breathed the life, he who breathed the breath of life into the first man is now himself a man breathing his first breath. The king of kings sleeping in a cow pen. The creator of oceans and seas and rivers afloat in the womb of his mother. God sucking his thumb. The alpha and omega learning his multiplication tables. He who was once surrounded by the glorious stereophonic praise of adoring angels now hears the lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, the stammering of bewildered shepherds. He who spoke the universe into being now coos and cries. Omniscient deity counting his toes. From the robes of eternal glory to the rags of swaddling cloths. The omnipresent spirit whose being fills the galaxy confined to the womb of a peasant girl. Infinite power learning to crawl. Mary playing patty cake with the Lord of Lords. 
What are we supposed to make of all this? We are supposed to make of it a God who can be worshipped not only because of his miracles, but because he comes in the ordinary, because he comes as a servant, because he comes at a babe, that he serves the, the least likely. And it's supposed to move us to surprise, move us to wonder, move us to worship at the amazement that not only God would come and rescue us, but he would come in this way. Have you pondered yet this story of the Advent, the reversal that God does as he comes in this ordinary, surprising way? I want to encourage you this morning, I want to encourage you in the weeks to come to spend some time in Luke chapter 2, to spend some time in the early chapters of Matthew contemplating the surprise and the wonder that God would visit us, and he would visit us in weakness. He would come vulnerable, and ultimately he would come sacrificial to conquer not through an army, to conquer not through power, but through his sacrificial love, through his sacrificial death. What a wonder. And if it's truly true, if it's real, then it brings joy and peace and hope and love to ordinary folks like you and me. Would you bow your heads and take some time right now to just go before the Lord and confess, Jesus, we have not pondered you this season. Jesus, we have not worshipped you as you deserve. We have been rushing and, and hustling and buying and planning and baking, but we have not fallen on our knees in surprise and wonder that you've come like this. Oh, Jesus, forgive us, and oh, Jesus, move our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth, in awe and wonder. May this not be a month just of preparation for exchanging of gifts and some wonderful food, but it may, may it be preparation for our hearts to worship the God who has come to us so surprisingly, so ordinarily. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.